Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent self-proclaimed number one podcast dedicated to telling the stories and reliving the memories of the American Wrestling Association. My name is Chris Tubbs. Enough about me. Let's bring in the uh, the other two uh, gentlemen part of this. And uh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm calling you gentlemen. But uh, the, actually, there's uh, there's another one, but we'll get there a little bit later. Uh, Mick Karch and Joe Chupik. Guys, I'm going to start off right off the bat. We are just uh, a couple of weeks away from our very first AWA Unleashed After Dark, brought to you by Zubas, featuring Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Great event coming up. I've said the past couple of weeks how much I love working with Jumpin' Jimmy. And uh, if you have questions about the old AWA that you want answered in a direct straightforward fashion jumping jim is your guy and he's going to be taking those questions at the q a and he is going to be signing autographs posing for pictures he'll have some memorabilia available uh pizza drink goodie bags we got it all for you and joe i know this is your old stomping ground you're very familiar with the with the haven that they have affectionately renamed the chupic hall in south st paul I wouldn't quite go that far. It is the Croatian Hall. I've heard great stories about it. I'm looking forward to making it for my very first time to the Crow. Uh, This AWA Unleashed After Dark event, uh, this is going to be a no-holds-barred strap match, cage match, no DQ. This is going, whatever questions you want to ask, feel free to do it. Uh, We are encouraging discretion on bringing in uh, young children. Um, You certainly can, but we'll just call it, this will be a rated R version of some storytelling of jumping Jim Brunzel's days with the AWA. I might have a story or two. Mick will have a story or two. And Chris will just be sitting there salivating over the the questions and the stories. Yeah, what's going to be great about this, guys, is we like to, you know, keep it somewhat on the up and up here on the podcast because we do know that there are you know, I, I don't. There aren't a lot of kids that listen to this podcast, but we don't want to go over the top. But there are some things that you just can't say on this that you would like to be able to really get into the the nuts and bolts of the story. And here's the opportunity to hear these stories unfiltered, unfettered. And I'm going to put that information up on the screen right now. Again, it is a AWA Unleashed After Dark. Coming up Friday night, April 28th at The Crow. Uh, tickets, everything available at awaunleashedpodcast.com. Now, tickets, $25 pre-order, 30 at the door. We do have a limited number of uh, eight-person VIP tables, which gets you a pizza, which gets you drinks, which gets you a front row seat, gets you two drinks. Uh, it, it two gets pizzas. You two pizzas. Two pizzas, sorry. Yeah, two pizzas, uh, get you drinks. It gets you a goodie bag. It gets you a front row seat. And that's going to be coming up on Friday night, April 28th at The Crow. That's going to be a great event. We're looking forward to that. If you have any questions, hit us up on any of our social media platforms. Now, as for today, guys, we've got another, uh, I would say, very 
it's a, it's a topic that I think I've been wanting to cover for a while. And it's a, it's an event that I think fans are going to remember either good or bad. And that is Russell rock, uh, 1986. Now this one is an event that took place at the Metrodome, Hubert H Humphrey Metrodome, April 20th, 1986, the announced attendance, 23,000. And it looked when I was watching it, it, yeah, exactly. Joe, it looked like it was a little bit less than that, but it was held in a metro in the Metrodome, which can seat up to 65, maybe 70,000, depending on the uh, configuration. But I want to ask you, Mick, just the overall shape of the AWA when Wrestle Rock, when this idea came to fruition and they actually had the show April 20th, 1986. The AWA was on kind of a rebound. Uh, not that they had been doing badly, but they got an ESPN deal. And all of a sudden, they're on worldwide television. And Joe has alluded to this many times, that it was the ESPN deal that really was keeping the AWA afloat uh, back in the day. Uh, so they had some momentum going, and this was a grandiose event, at least on paper. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about some of that. But uh, all the potential in the world, big deals at the Metrodome, and the eyes of the wrestling world were on the Twin Cities. And, Chris, I'll hand it back to you. Well, I want to, first of all, ask you, Joe, from a production standpoint, because that was one of the first things that I noticed was just how this thing was shot and, and how it was presented. Because a big part of, you know, wrestling nowadays, and maybe it wasn't so much back then, maybe they were kind of starting to get into it, was just the way that these shows were pre uh, presented on television. And let me ask you, from a t production standpoint, would this have been one of the more important events that you were involved in? You know, how far in advance were you made aware that this was going to be taking place in the Metrodome, which was the home of the twins, the, the home of the Vikings. So a very, maybe the highest profile uh, um, building in the entire state of Minnesota. Was there any pressure on you guys to, you know, quote unquote, get this right? Well, one thing to keep in mind, it wasn't, it was an event, obviously, but it wasn't going on to pay-per-view. So from a production standpoint, it was any like any other taping that we have done. I think we may have gone up to uh, five cameras for the shoot. Um, we typically did four when we were uh, either at the, the Tropicana or Showboat Hotel or, <laughs> hell, even Whitewater, Wisconsin. From a production standpoint, it really wasn't any different from, uh, to, to answer your question, when, when did I know about it? So keep in mind, I started October 7th of 85. Wrestle Rock was April 20th of 86. Oh, Mick, Chris, you're muted. Oh, no, no. So, so about six months. I was just kind of talking to myself here. So, so about six months in is. Yeah. Is so, you know, I was pretty new into it, but even okay. at that, it was shortly after the Christmas show that uh, I was finally given some further insight. I mean, there were some rumblings early on about doing it, but it was right after Christmas time. That's sort of when everything got geared up to go towards Wrestle Rock. Of course, Thanksgiving night and Christmas night were huge shows for the AWA. 
uh, you know, at the Civic Center or Minneapolis Auditorium, depending on how far you want to go back. Um, so, yeah, we, we knew several months in advance that this was going to happen. Uh, several things prior to it, you know, made, well, like, I guess, like the old line says, cards subject to change. And we'll get into that uh, more later on. Um, you brought up the attendance thing, Chris. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Metrodome just in the bleachers was going to be able to hold about 60 grand, 60,000 people for a wrestling event. I got to believe that if if it was warranted that they could have gotten like the Pontiac Silverdome, they might have been able to get up to 100,000 people by having a shit ton of seats mm-hmm. on that god awful surface surface of the uh, of the old metrodome but it wasn't it was set up on the infield which in hindsight was a really good idea um no it would you i mean you take a look at the wide shot and you know the official records have about a $300,000 gate with 23,000 people i'm just going to call bullshit <laughs> Excuse me, allergies. Um, yeah, it, no, it, it, it was. It, it, I, I I don't know ever. I never gotten what the official attendance was, but if I was going to guess, I would maybe put in about the fifteen thousand range. Okay. Hey, I, here's a question. I just want to follow because I know you get the next one, Mick. So from shooting it, I I saw that there was one. I don't know if it would have been on a crane or, you know, like the, the, the camera angle that kind of showed the the angle over the ring that, I mean, you could see pockets of of empty seats when you saw that. I mean, was that a shot that you felt you needed to put into the production? Because I don't felt I, I don't feel like that shot. At that point, it, it didn't really do a service, in my opinion, to the card. So from the production side, um, my involvement was I was essentially um, a production gopher for that one. Again, okay. keep in mind, I'd only been in it for six months. Yeah. Um, Mike Shields, who had hired me, had been directing all of the shows. Wrestle Rock was actually the very first show that a gentleman who we've had on the podcast, Al Darusha, directed. Not his first wrestling show, but his first one after coming back from working with the WWF. Al and Gary had come back, and they were now back involved with the AWA. So Al directed it. That camera shot you're talking about, did it need to be taken? No, but... When you set up a, a camera in the center field nosebleed bleachers, uh, you, you got to do something with it. Shot. Yeah. Um, it was set up in the hopes that it would be a fantastic glamour shot. And the shot itself was good. Just had a lot of people dressed like empty blue seats. The interesting thing, I love that. <laughs> The interesting thing that I would say about that, Joe, first of all, you know, even from the productions in Rochester, uh, rule of thumb in pro wrestling, don't show empty seats if, if you can possibly avoid it. I mean, how many times were those 700 people in Rochester told to move over so they could all be on television? Um, so I don't necessarily think that the, the opening shot of empty seats 
did a lot of good, not only because it just didn't look good, but because this was such a big deal and had it been promoted so heavily. And one of the first things that you're seeing is, you know, this didn't draw as much as we, you know, would I've hoped that it would. But having said that, and this is always near and dear to my heart, you were there. I was just shooting pictures at ringside. I wasn't part of the crew yet. Vern Gagne, arguably the biggest event uh, the AWA had had, at least from a publicity standpoint. We know that Vern could get a little testy uh, back in the day once in a while when the <laughs> when the screws were being turned a little bit. Early on, as you're getting involved in this, what was Vern's demeanor like? How was he to work with, or didn't you have uh, direct contact with him? Um, minimal contact, uh, you know, and, and again, as I mentioned a couple of times, I was still new, you know, six months in, and keep in mind for the first three months of my tenure with the AWA, I actually had federal jury duty. That's a whole nother story, but I still went into the AWA at night and did my editing and, and dubs. So my interaction with Vern was minimal, but I did have interaction with him. Um, his demeanor wasn't really any different than any other event that he had done. It was just another event. Yes, it was big. As we were getting closer, I got a little sense of some concern that the ticket sales weren't what Vern was hoping for. Um, you throw in some uh, changes that had to come in the card uh, that night. Uh, just dealing with talent in general, that's always, you know, uh, always fun, shall we say. So it, it wasn't anything different from Vern's perspective. But yeah, you could tell there was a little bit of stress and he wasn't happy with the, uh, the, the pre-event the, the pre ticket sales. So I, I noticed this, and I don't know if you guys noticed. There, there are a few different things. I just want to make sure that I'm uh, going uh, to, 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 you know what? I, I'm just trying to make sure I'm following, I'm, I'm following all of my, uh, my, my notes here. Um, Cause we've got a, we've got a, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of notes before we get into the show itself. Cause I do want to ask you about something I saw with the very first one, very first uh, match. I know that the big show for the WWF, WrestleMania three was at the Pontiac Silverdome, you know, in uh, 1987, March of 1987. This was in the Metrodome, a very similar uh, layout, if you will. Do you guys get the sense or is it just ironic that the WWF held WrestleMania three in a dome following this being put on in the Metrodome? Do you feel like there's any, correlation there or could it just be a matter of coincidence well first of all as far as being inside a dome you know that was the trend you know for big big stadiums so i think you're headed that way anyway chris um there were outdoor shows certainly at stadium shea stadium and texas stadium and what have you i would venture to say uh, to answer your question directly, no, I don't think it had any, any correlation because knowing the WWF the way we do, they got things planned out a long time in advance. 
Uh, okay. You know, they know what city is going to be hosting such and such and such and such. So I don't think so. Um, you know, good point. But I, I think that was just the trend. And I think when Vern did it, um, maybe Vern had insight into the fact that Vince is going to be going into the Pontiac Silverdome. And we're going to come in earlier and we're going to usurp this from him. You know, the, the whole dome stadium idea. Unfortunately for Vern, of course, was, you know, that he drew, you know, one fifth or one sixth of what Vince did. So, you know, th- th- there you go. But I mean, as far as Vince picking up on the idea, I don't think so. I think it was already there in place. I, I agree with you, Mick. I mean, Chris, keep in mind, I mean, the AWA had done shows at Comiskey Park. Yep. So this wasn't their, it was the first dome stadium. But I think that was just more that because there was going, there's more and more dome stadiums that were being built after, you know, the Astrodome, I believe, or the yep. Superdome. I think the Astrodome was the first one. So, I mean, it was just that happened to be the indoor stadium in Minnesota. And it was the mm-hmm. first time that the AWA had done a, uh, shall we call it a ballpark venue in the, in the twin cities. So I I think it's more coincidence than, uh, than anything that Vince ended up doing WrestleMania three at the Silverdome. Okay. I I was just, I was curious because I saw it and it just, you know, that's my mind kind of makes those connections. So let's get into the, the show itself. First match, Brad Reagans versus Boris Zukov. And was I the only one? Well, first of all, I, I want to ask you, Mick, bringing in uh, Gary Michael Capetta. They knew him from the you know Crockett territory, from NWA, from WCW. What do you feel the reason was for bringing somebody like that to this event? Personally, I, I've never liked the idea of... Um, bringing in a guest ring announcer. Uh, that's just me because I see it as a kind of an unnecessary expense. Um, Gary Capetta, very nice guy and no question about it. He had experience, as you said, with the, the major organization. So I think the you know, the AWA was counting on his recognition. But if you think about it, it in terms of ticket sales, uh, was Gary Capetta going to put one ass in a seat? I, I don't think yeah. so. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I've never been a fan of that, especially even Michael Buffer, you know, I, I thought, you know, okay, you're paying this guy, how much money to come in and say, let's get ready to rumble in a main event. And you send him back to his luxury suite and put him back on the plane. Um, I just don't understand that, but I know I was looking at our notes and I know you have a question about Gary Capetta that I think is very intriguing. Go ahead. So regarding uh, Capetta, um, keep in mind, he actually was a ring announcer for the AWA prior to WrestleRock. He was doing the ring announcing from the Tropicana, and that's where ESPN Championship Wrestling originated from at the beginning. Later, we switched it over to the showboat. But Gary is from the Northeast, and so and he had done wrestling as we had you know you had mentioned mm-hmm. before. So it was a natural. Vern was actually saving money by not having to fly somebody into the to uh, the Tropicana because Gary was there. Of course, I had to pay him to ring announce, 
but he was from the Northeast already. So he didn't, the, it's not like all of a sudden Gary popped out of nowhere for mm -hmm. Twin Cities fans in particular, mm -hmm. keep, in, keep in mind the time frame, 1986, cable television was still in its infancy. Not, you know, it, it's not like it was today and, and certainly, you know, no internet and streaming. But from a television standpoint, a lot of people in the Twin Cities didn't know who Gary Capetta was because they didn't have cable yet. Right, yeah. They weren't watching AWA Championship Wrestling on ESPN. So I, I, I get it. It's like it, it wasn't a fit, but at the same time, it was. And, and Mick, I, I have a tendency to agree with you on your guest ring announcer thing. As we get into this, Wrestle Rock had a ton of local celebrities yeah, exactly. being announcers for it. And they didn't have to pay to fly them in. I don't know if they even paid them to do it. But it was very standard for Vern. You know, wanted to do the, the local um, tie-in. Um, you know, your Randy Shavers, your, your Gary Rons. Uh, a lot of local celebrities that might have meant something for people here in you know whoever got cco radio in the in their broadcast area but outside of that nah, they really didn't they, they weren't going to put any more butts in the seats it was just the celebrity angle that Vern was exactly going exactly so we're gonna this is kind of a different show than what we normally do uh, you know, we kind of jump. We're going to go chronologically through this because when I was watching the show, I had notes that I wanted to ask both of you guys. Because now looking back on it, and you know, kind of got questions that if I've got it, then you know, hopefully some of the other people. First of all, the the, the first match, Boris Zukov and Brad Reggins. Was I the only one that noticed that when Brad jumped over the top rope, that Gary Capetta lost his balance and fell into the ropes was, was i was i the only one that noticed that because i i had to rewind a couple of times i'm like did he was he sitting on the rope was he and i felt like Sheik adnan he was like holding the road trying to hold gary up but i felt like he he kind of just went ass over a tea kettle into the ropes when brad reagan's just jumped over it what I would say to that, and Joe, you know, you're the production guy. You probably have, have a better idea. But, you know, Brad Ringens weighed in about 245, 250. Uh, Brick Shithouse. And, and Gary Capetta, uh, you know, if, if a stiff wind came up, uh, you know, Gary would blow right out of the Metrodome if the roof collapsed or whatever. So it, it may just be that centrifugal force that uh, that plummeted Gary Capetta. But, yeah, there's no, there's no question about it. Gary uh, took a, a semi-bump. Uh, when Brad entered the ring, and, and uh, welcome to the Twin Cities. Welcome to the AWA <laughs> and the Metrodome. You're right about Gary, uh, you know, very uh, um, slight build, and still, you know, still looks great. I worked with yeah, him about a, about a year ago. Um, something to keep in mind, Chris, uh, and I've said this all along with professional wrestling, it's not fake. It might be predetermined, <laughs> yeah, um, and it certainly is exaggerated. So, Mick, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, Brad, Brad is a 
fire hydrant. I mean, short, stocky, put together. Uh, he liked to jump over the ring, uh, over the top rope to get into the ring because physically he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would have no doubt. I don't know for sure, but I, I no doubt that Gary might not have been fully prepared for Brad's entrance. But I think, uh, you, hey, it's wrestling. If you're in the ring, you got to sell. I can't, I can't believe I'm hearing this, uh, you know, the exaggeration and selling and everything else <laughs> as it relates to wrestling. Oh, I, it's modeled after your own life, Mick. Man. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoa. Wow. 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 A- my, yeah, well, my, my, you know, she was a no sell, unfortunately. <laughs> but let's uh, let's talk about Boris and uh, and Brad. I yes. thought for an opening match. Not too shabby. I mean, you had two ring veterans going in there. Um, they knew what they were doing, just enough to get the crowd, the the appetites wetted a little bit. And I, I'm a fan of both. I love Brad Ringens, Boris Zukov, one of the nice guys in the business. There's old Boris. There's uh, old Private Jim Nelson uh, in his heyday, and we've shown pictures of Boris recently. Doesn't look look quite the same, not quite the bulk. Uh, and Brad Ringens, we talked about Brad being a, a, I love that descriptor, a fire hydrant, and he is, and he's uh, and he's every bit as uh, immovable as a fire hydrant. So it, you know, it was a good opening match and a good way to kick things off. Nothing, nothing bad, nothing exceptional, uh, but but solid. I agree. One one thing I'd like to add about the match. And as we go along through this, I'll expand on it a little bit more. But this was really one of the small percentage of matches at Wrestle Rock that actually had an angle. A history. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, U.S. versus Russia. Keep in mind, I, I think it was, was it the 80 or 84 Olympics that Brad got screwed out of being able to go to? I believe it was 80. Okay, 80. So, and there was the Russian Olympics, U.S. boycotted. Yep. So, I mean, you had that, you had that built in. Um, the Cold War was still going on. What I found funny is that you had Sheikh Adnan LKC and Iraqi seconding or managing a Russian at the time going against an American. Funny how some things the more things change, the more they sort of stay the same, I guess. It's all business. It's all yep. business. You know, uh, bottom line, it's the money. Yeah, but, you know, it's, but uh, it's not really an angle that, um, that that's carried forth much anymore. You don't see the USA versus whatever other nationality or, or country. It's just not... It's just not played as much as it was, you know, going back, I'll throw in Baron von Raschke, you know, the hated German and shit. That was 25 years after World War II when that was still going on <laughs> before Baron turned babyface. But no, I agree, Mick. I mean, the match itself, um, not a bad way to kick it off um, as far as opening matches go. Uh, I think it was fantastic from an opening match perspective and i've said it many many times brad was a fantastic worker in the ring there's a reason he would he trained for Vern. he was just that good his charisma you know wasn't quite there and his ability to work the mic um if he'd have had the mic skills i think brad could have gone on 
um, to, to greater things. Let's get into some Brad Riggins wins with a, uh, a belly to belly. The, the next match was a, uh, a, a midget match is what they call it. Little Tokyo, Lord Littlebrook versus Cowboy Lang and Little Mr. T. Now, now, number one, I'm really surprised at that point you could say Little Mr. T just in terms of like copyrights and trademarks and things like that. But I mean, not to pick on Gary Capetta because I don't know him. I, I've got nothing against him, but he got the announcement wrong. And I think that uh, I believe it was supposed to be a little Tokyo because he introduced uh, Lord Littlebrook and then it was supposed to be a little Tokyo. And he, he went, you know, from Chicago, Illinois and little Tokyo, you could see was just like, you know, just kind of gave him a little bit of side eye, but you know, a, a, a midget match as they would say, um, you know, I guess, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, Gary Lumpkin being brought in as the, uh, the guest referee. Well, first of all, as far as the Gary Capetta getting all screwed up, there's an awful lot of littles in that match. You got a little Tokyo, little yeah. Mr. B, little this, little that. Um, so I can understand Gary's confusion. And you're in this in this dome. You know, you could get confused. And as far as Chicago uh, as opposed to Tokyo, hey, Kenny J, Cleveland, Ohio, as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to West Bloomington, Minnesota. You know, it, it, I mean, before, Tokyo and Chicago, I would get them messed up, too. They're. I mean, you put them next to each other on a map, I can't tell the difference. You, you can't tell the difference. You absolutely can't. And, and uh, that's why you and I both did so well in geography in, in uh, school. <laughs> um, but I, I would say as far as bringing Gary Lumpkin again as a referee, again, this is a situation where Vern is going to a local celebrity. On the national stage, Gary Lumpkin did not mean anything. He was a, a, a TV host here. And he is the man, of course, that Sherry Martell bit on the arm uh, when he refereed a match and, and was included into the finish. So, uh, again, the match is comic relief. I guess four midget matches, which I'm not a big fan of because I think they tend to really overexpose the business. Uh, but it wasn't too bad because you had four guys in there that really were seasoned veterans knew what they were doing so for the comedy relief you know for the kids that were attendants i thought it was fine yeah i mean these type of matches for years were believe it or not um very similar to andre the giant yes and here's why they were both considered sides sideshow attractions there was never going to be an extended run for uh, any of them. I mean, Andre, you know, would be in a territory for a few months, you know, so they would build off of that. But the this type of match was not only similar to Andre, but I, I would argue uh, at the time, although the evolution uh, had already started, but ladies' matches were still considered a just – a throw in a sort of a, a, a special a, attraction. That was it. Something different than just guys going at it all the time. Um, and Wrestle Rock had 15 matches. The second one, as has been described, was there for comedic entertainment. And Mick, you're right. I mean, it, it certainly exposes the business a lot more, but it, at a time when it still wasn't. 
uh, or kayfabe was still uh, around. But I bring up the 15 matches and get back to that. Mm-hmm. Overall, and again, we'll cover this as the matches go. Overall, my problem to Wrestle Rock was a lot of good wrestlers. On paper, a lot of good matches, but there was really no substance behind them. There was no angle that was built in. It was a case of this being a huge event. You've got people like Bulldog Bob Brown and the Giant Baba, and we'll get into that match, sadly, in a a while. But you had a lot of these wrestlers contacting Vern to be a part of it. And yeah, they were a big name. Wahoo McDaniel, big name against Colonel De Beers, um, which sort of had a built-in rivalry. But my point is a lot of these matches that we're going to cover were just matches. There was no payoff, no storyline, no big buildup or angle going into them, especially, I mean, the later matches, yeah. You know, maybe, you know, we'll cover that in the second half. But for the first half, they're just, it was just matches put together in a lot of instances. um, They were, they were brought in because they were a name. Okay, we got this guy coming in and this guy coming in. Who can we have a match with against them? Well, how can you promote anything with, I'll use the Giant Baba and Bulldog um, Brown match, how, how do you build up an angle to it? There is no build up. Neither, yeah. well, you had one guy in Japan, another guy wrestling out of Kansas City or out of, out of the St. Louis territory. Where, where's, yeah. you know, not where, I'll go, I'll be blunt and say, why? It didn't make sense. Yeah. Well, Mick, you talked about earlier about, you know, like the longest match being like 15 minutes. Well, let's take out some of these matches that, in my opinion, didn't deserve to be a part of Wrestle Rock and put that time onto the bigger matches. Well, there, there's my blanket coverage of, of, of the booking for this. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things about Wrestle Rock is the rock part. And, you know, it's <laughs> Wrestle Rock. It was the, and I think you guys know where I'm going with this, that the rock was a big, because, I mean, we were getting into this rock and wrestling, you know, we were getting into this mainstream media crossover. I had heard, and maybe I'm wrong, that there was a somebody who was from this area, one of us, uh, by the name of Prince, was uh, allegedly contacted for this. But then for whatever reason, when that fell through, it ended up being Waylon Jennings. And from, I, I, I don't understand how you can call it Wrestle Rock, maybe Wrestle Country with Waylon Jennings, but the Waylon, it just didn't fit for me. Like, if, if you want to give me this high, intense, you know, feeling for card and get me excited... Waylon Jennings is is not going to do it for me when you're talking about wrestling in Minneapolis. Well, go ahead. Was it was it, was it money? I mean, wh- why was it Waylon and not Prince? 
you you are correct that well we'll put it this way Waylon Jennings was not the first choice it was a last minute we need to have some big star appear um keeping in mind professional artists uh you know somebody like Prince in 1986 was at the top of his game now, I don't know whether or not he was approached. I would be surprised if he wasn't being a Minnesota person. But when the AWA starts trying to book a huge name for Russell Rock, and they don't start doing it until January, you've got three, maybe four months of time to try to get somebody booked. These guys have got their shows booked already. You know, and so if you want them to come in and work, okay, my price has gone up because I'm going to have to cancel this or I'm in the middle of a tour. Waylon Jennings, while a fantastic artist uh, in his own right, was not, I'll, I'll say, deserved to be a part of Russell Rock. And it was a ongoing joke in the office that, yeah, Russell Rock Country. Um, he did, hey, did a great show, but yeah, didn't quite fit the motif of Wrestle Rock. Unlike when the other Wrestle Rocks were done in Salt Lake and Denver, you had the likes of Molly Hatchet playing. Well, okay, they might have been past their prime, but they were still rock and roll, rock and roll, wrestling, Wrestle Rock. Now we have a connection. Waylon, no, sorry, just didn't cut it. You muted again, Mike, Chris. Sorry, I was working on some things. Uh, do you remember what the ticket prices were at, at that point, like the, the price points leading into it? I I don't. Mick, have any idea? I don't think so. I did, For some reason, I'm remembering maybe $100 for ringside. Okay. Uh, I, I think that was probably the going rate, but I, I couldn't tell you. But again, if you've got a legitimate, well, who knows, $300,000 house, mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't have been too cheap if they had 15,000 people in the building. Probably average price 20 bucks, 25 bucks, mm -hmm. I would okay. guess. So why, why the Metrodome, though? Like, Wouldn't the... I mean, they, they ran the St. Paul Civic Center, and the Civic Center would have been perfect. Why the Metrodome? Or, you know, why couldn't you have, when the ticket sales weren't moving or you weren't going to have this large capacity crowd, why not make that change? I mean, production-wise, it seemed like it would have been a much easier thing. I, I would think, first of all, it's the glitz and the glamour of running a dome stadium. That's first and foremost. You got all these stadiums and outdoor shows and indoor shows and everything else. And at that point, you know, Vern is feeling the threat from, you know, he doesn't want to be down here and Vince is up here in terms of production and extravaganza and so on and so forth. Uh, I would also say, well, first of all, you can't shift course in midstream and say, well, your tickets aren't going well. We're going to drop the Metrodome idea and we're going to go to the Civic Center. Can't do that. That's um, true. You, you, you got you got to commit to it. And, yeah, and I get yeah. that because you booked the building, you put in all these expenses. That's I right. I, I, think, I think as time drew near, Chris, I'm sure in retrospect, it would probably have been a great idea to book the Civic Center because if you've got that kind of crowd that Joe and I are talking about, 
16,000, 17,000 people, then you've got your packed house at the Civic Center. And so many tremendous cards had been held at the Civic Center. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I've never been a fan of stadium cards. I'm just not. I think you lose the intimacy, especially, you know, these days where a fan pays $50, $60 and he's, you know, 700 miles from the ring. Um, I Watching think that, it on a TV screen above the ring. Exactly, exactly. I, I think that the uh, the Civic Center was the place to do it, but once you commit, you know, yeah. and in retrospect with the size of the crowd, I'm, I'm sure there were some regrets. You, you nailed it right on the head, Nick. I mean, it, it was Vern wanting to uh, do something he's never done before. In terms of the AWA, this was the largest or the biggest anticipated, anticipated. event that the AWA ever, uh, ever did. Uh, I think I could argue not only from a fan's perspective, but from an AWA perspective. Um, this was bigger than uh, Vern's first retirement match against Nick Bockwinkle. This was bigger than Super Sunday. And in, I theory, in theory, you know, as you said, you know, it, correct. It, yeah. Correct. That, that was the approach. That was the thought process that this was going to be a $30,000, $40,000 house uh, or 30000 $40,000 person house. And Vern was going to be able to have a nice big nest egg to be able to continue on. And the AWA was going to be thrust back up on top. No, didn't quite happen. So we got about uh, 15 minutes left in this one. We got about 10 more minutes uh, of the show. And then we'll kind of get into a couple of other things before we wrap it up. Uh, we're going to come back with a part two next week. But we got a, a couple more things I want to ask. There's a question here because we did take some questions from some of our, our listeners, and this is from Russ Schoberg to you guys. As far as you knew, were there ever plans for Wrestle Rock 2? Um, I get that, and then I've got a, a, another follow-up. So if this would have gone better, were there plans? Was there anything kind of in the works to follow up? I don't know if there were at that point, um, but as you said, if this would have worked, and I think right away it didn't work, uh, at least not here in the Twin Cities area. So I would guess, you know, at the, and especially going 1986 into 19, there, oh, 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 oh. 1986, 1987, the AWA is starting to go over the top of the hill and down. So I, I think if there were any Wrestle Rock 2 plants in the works, I sure didn't hear about them. And I think they would have been scrapped pretty quickly after the size of the crowd. What say you, Joe? Well, certainly not a Wrestle Rock 2 in Minneapolis. There was not going to be another Dome show. But as I alluded to earlier, we actually did have other Wrestle Rocks. Um, yeah. I believe Denver, Salt Lake. I don't know if we did one in San Fran, but I'm pretty sure that we did Denver and Salt Lake, where we called them Wrestle Rock. And we had molly hatchet as one of the headliners for those shows so the concept was done again but it wasn't in a big stadium it was in an arena that we the salt palace uh in in uh, uh salt lake and uh 
um, and in Denver with promoter Gene Reed. They're just running the same venues that they had always run. It was just given a name for the event, which was rare at that time for for events, in particular for uh, for the AWA. Mostly they were, you know, it was a Thanksgiving card, Christmas card, Burns retirement match. I think Super Sunday is really the first one that I remember that sort of had a, a name yeah. attached to it. So, I mean, it was a pretty new thing. But no, Wrestle Rock was tried again in other towns. Unfortunately, it was during that downslide of the AWA and they just didn't, it didn't work. I've got a, a follow up to that and your cat's back, by the way, Mick. I, 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 I see that. that. I've got the, yeah. I love her. She, she's awesome. Okay, so uh, the last one here, and then we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up part one here. Uh, from John Hall, and you were talking about Gene Reed there, Joe. Uh, the last event that he worked for the AWA in Denver was a wrestle rock. Uh, one of the rock bands was booed off the stage, and that was when uh, Stan Hansen was supposed to take on Nick Bockwinkel for the AWA belt. Uh, he was in the back before the match, rang the bell for the match. Only Nick was there. Uh, Stan Hansen had left the building. Lots of booze from the crowd. The crowd was bad, and he was almost sure that that was the last match that Gene Reed put on. He was getting tired of losing money, and uh, he doesn't recall any of the other matches that night. And just a, a sad ending for the AWA in Denver. I think, and, and Joe, I think you will agree with this. Nothing was going right for the AWA at that point. No matter what they tried. It seemed like somewhere along the line there was a glitch. Whether it was Stan Hansen walking out of the building, the rock band being booed off the stage, 15,000 people in a 65,000-seat Metrodome, uh, Gary Capetta falling against the ropes, Whitewater, Wisconsin, whatever it might have been, if the AWA, it, it, it's like they walked around with a dark cloud over their head. And... By that point, we know the train had already left the station anyway, and they were trying so desperately to throw stuff at the to throw stuff at the wall, which I'm going to be doing in a minute to see what would stick, and it, it just wasn't happening. I I don't think they could do anything right with all the good intentions that they had. You are right, Nick. I mean, the the downslide was there, and no matter who we would bring in. It, it just wasn't working. Although I will have to add in the asterisk, there were still a couple of things that were working for the AWA. In Wrestle Rock from the Metrodome, the first match between Rose and Summers and the Midnight Rockers, that ended up going into being an absolutely incredible feud highlighted by the bloodbath in Las Vegas. Um, we also still had Kurt Henning uh, versus Nick Bockwinkel, although if you notice on this card, um, Kurt was still in a tag team. So he was still the, the younger version of Nick. He wasn't quite perfect yet, but he was working towards it. So, I mean, there were still some things happening. And, again, I'd be remiss if I, wasn't, if I didn't say AWA Championship Wrestling on ESPN. So – there still was something happening, but it's like having a, 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 uh, a stewardess or a steward on an airplane bringing you a drink or several drinks right after 
the pilot comes on and says, get ready for crash landing. Yeah, you still had some things going, but it was going to be short-lived, and shit's about to hit the fan. And you mentioned the the, the Midnight Rockers and the uh, Doug Summers and Buddy Rose match. We're going to go ahead and stop it because we're going to kick off part two next week talking about that match and something that I think a lot of fans, you know, me personally, the, the version that we see – I've got a question for you guys about that, but we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up part one of our conversation about Wrestle Rock. Uh, one more time, do you want to take, please uh, subscribe to all of our uh, social media platforms, whether it's YouTube. YouTube's probably the, uh, the best and most efficient. You get to see our lovely faces, whether or not you like, but you also get the pictures. You also get the good stuff, not just us. Uh, you, you get to kind of add that extra context. And if you subscribe, you're going to be the first one to know. No, she's gone, Mick. Your, your cat's not there. Get I, nervous. I, I was watching. Get no, no, no. She's, she's there. Well, well, you see, that that's one thing about YouTube. You get to see the cat. Whereas if you don't have YouTube, all you do is hear me shrieking when she jumps on my testicles. So it's it's a, it's a whole different whole different ballgame with the visual. And, and if you... Is Go your ahead. cat's name Sherry by chance after Sherry Martell? I can only hope. <laughs> and by the way, if you come to our After Dark show, you might get some stories about something like that. Uh, you I'm might. just saying. Mick and cats and Sherry and balls and all of that. I don't know how it ties together, but if you come to our Unleashed After Dark coming up on April 28th at The Crow... Uh, you're going to be able to ask many questions because, believe me, I've already got questions. Uh, presented by Zubas with uh, Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Information on our podcast page, awaunleashedpodcast.com. $25 in advance, 30 at the door. We have eight-person VIP tables. Uh, you get two pizzas. Well, not just for you, two for the table. You get one drink ticket, right? To one, I feel like you're like a third one base coach. Ticket per person. Per person. VIP table. Yeah, you're going to have to, like, you're not all going to split one drink. You can each have your own drink. Uh, but you're going to get a goodie bag. You're going to get a front row seat. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be an awesome time. Your cat just did a snuck off the windowsill. The cat will also be uh, on hand at After Dark signing <laughs> autographs and posing for pictures. <laughs> oh, my God. That's I, I, your cat. I got to admit, is so over with it. It's incredible. Your cat is more more over than anything else on the podcast. Uh, I've been in this business almost forty years, and the cat is more over in four minutes than I got in the whole forty years. There you go, and uh, we will catch you guys next week, part two of uh, Wrestle Rock '86.